Thank you for listening or watching our podcast. Baptism is a sign of the covenant and not our faith. We do not see baptism having its origins in the New Testament, but originating in the Old Testament. If this is true, then why does the New Testament so clearly seem to teach that one first professes their faith and then they are baptized? Where do we see baptism as a sign of the covenant rather than a sign of our faith? Where do we see that baptism is a picture of the gospel that shows us a warning and assurance of the Lord's blessing and his covenantal promises? If you are curious about these questions, please stay tuned and listen to our sermon on baptism. Once again this morning we witness uh, infant baptism and sometimes people wonder why we do this practice. I think, unfortunately, in America, uh, many times when people hear about baptism, they think there's only two schools. Uh, There's a proper school where somebody professes their faith, and then they're baptized, and then there's a Roman Catholic view that baptizes infants. And what I always point out when, when people bring this up to me is that those aren't really the only two views of baptism. And I will fully concede and grant that the household passages in and of themselves are probably not the best places to begin uh, with infant baptism. But to be honest, we've gone through so many of the texts of infant baptism that I figure uh, the other sermons are on the webpage or the internet. We can easily look them up. And I think now it's time to maybe head out to more of the obscure passages that I do think teach baptism when we put them in the proper context of Scripture. And that's what I would really say is the issue of infant baptism, is how do we understand the Word of God as a whole uh, versus trying to take individual verses out of Scripture, take them in their most literal, uh, smallest context, and try and make them mean what we think they mean, rather than asking, what is the intention of the whole household being baptized? What does that really mean? And so how does this household baptism that we witness here in Acts 16, and again, I took the household baptism in the book of Acts, it's probably the least persuasive for our view to make the case, and I did that on purpose. So people don't say, oh, he's passage in Acts. I I want to call attention to this. Yes, it is true. Philippian jailer brings them to their house. It is true the apostles teach the house, and it is true that they are then baptized. And so how would we look at this as people who come from a point of view that infant baptism is not only something that's taught in Scripture, but I'd be bold enough to say is commanded uh, by Scripture. How, How do we take that view and establish it from this text. And so as we look at this, I want to first ask the question, what is baptism? That's a very important question when we're talking about the sacraments, you know, the sign of God's gospel going forth. Secondly, why is it we first see a profession, then a baptism? And third, what about the language of the household, and why is that so significant? And so let's begin with what is baptism? When we talk about baptism, there's really different ways we, we can define the sign. I, I do appreciate the form, how it goes through different meanings and implications of baptism as, as you read the, 
the form. And I encourage you to go back and, and reread it. But the, the reality is when we look at baptism, a lot of times we can say, well, this is just a sign of spiritual regeneration, right? It's just a sign of the Spirit's work. Where that's certainly part of it. None of us as Reformed people would deny that. Our form says that. It's a sign of the Spirit's work. We can also say that maybe it's a sign of spiritual renewal. That it's a sign of regeneration. It's a sign of my faith. I believe. Therefore, as I believe, I receive the sign. We can kind of see that in some passages in Scripture. But I wouldn't say that's a, the substance of baptism. We can also see this as a sign of the covenant where we're confirmed in Christ, set apart, bearing the sign publicly as a house set apart unto the Lord. And so when, when we look at this, sometimes we can try and pigeonhole the sign to mean one particular thing. But as we saw in the Lord's Supper in the evening, there's a lot of things that the Lord's Supper implies. It's not just Passover, not just sacrifice. There's a lot of things going on in the symbolism of the sacrament. And I'd argue the same thing with baptism. And so I want to look at this in, in terms of the context. And we ask, you know, what is baptism? What's going on? I think it's important to understand how Paul and Silas ended up in prison in this situation. So clearly, these are uh, Paul's an apostle. Silas is, is working with him. Most likely, Silas is, is preaching also that they're teaching about the implications of Christ. So what the servant girl is saying after them is not false. They are teaching the way of salvation. Now, the evil spirit that's within her uh, does seem to be doing this to stir up trouble uh, within Rome in, in the hopes that you know, the people will be upset and saying, oh, you're saying there's one God, not a variety of gods. You're going against the God of the city. Well, we can't tolerate that, right? And that's pretty much what happens. So what happens is eventually Paul gets fed up and he calls his spirit out of her in the name of Christ. So the spirit comes out of her. Uh, the family is upset because whatever's going on, and we're not entirely sure what's going on, it may be sort of like a freak show entertainment thing that's actually happening with this slave girl because the, the implication of what she's doing is kind of where we get ventriloquism, where you speak in a different voice. So she might have her normal voice and all of a sudden you hear the voice of the spirit and it may give some insight into the spiritual realm. We're, we're not really clear as to what's going on, but what is going on is disturbing What's going on is very clear that she is possessed by an evil spirit. And what is also clear is that, tragically, her family is making money off this. So, so there's no concern about the torment of her soul. The only concern that the family has is this slave girl is profitable for us and we don't care. So, I mean, that's, that's pretty tragic. When you really think about the core of this and what's going on. And so when Paul casts out the Spirit, that's the point where they're upset. I mean, it's, it's, it's tragic when you read this, that they're not coming to Paul and saying, can you free her from this? Clearly some turmoil is going on. Some way of salvation needs to come to her. She needs to be delivered from this. No, the family's upset. We've lost our profit margin we can no longer basically traffic this human being and, and make this human being profitable for us. 
Therefore, we need to do something with these men. So now the narrative gets circulated that these are men who are upsetting the city, which is not really true. Uh, they're not going through the city creating division. They're basically preaching, a most likely implication synagogue to synagogue, uh, maybe even opportunities of interacting with different philosophers along the way, as we can see in the book of Acts that they do. And so they're, they're not trying to be divisive, but that's the, the, basically the narrative that's now circulating. And so obviously the city officials are upset, Paul and Silas are beaten, and they are put in prison. Now as their individuals were ups, upsetting the peace and, and basically causing all this turmoil, they're put into the inner recesses of the prison. The implication of this guard uh, having... Uh, them put into the inner recesses of the prison, receiving specific instruction, would imply that these are high-risk prisoners. Uh, these are prisoners that may face a very severe consequence. Not sure what that consequence may be. Could potentially be death, uh, depending on, on what happens from this. So now you, you have this reaction of Paul and Silas in the midst of prison, praying, singing songs during the evening. And as they're praying, singing songs, all of a sudden we have this extraordinary demonstration of God's providence. There's an earthquake, and miraculously the doors are open, their chains fall off, and the Philippian jailer wakes up. Now there is something rather irrational in the story, uh, because as a jailer wakes up, he moves immediately to wanting to, to commit suicide and to kill himself. Uh, which seems somewhat strange because you think you would first make your rounds and call for lights, maybe make sure that all the prisoners are out uh, before going to this extreme. But, but somehow, we, we don't know the exact instructions. We, we do know that in these scenarios, if a jailer receives these instructions, he would most likely be put to death if high-risk prisoners go free, especially if the doors are opened, the bonds fall off, the implication is this this guard is sort of in on a prison escape, so he's probably corrupt. So he knows his fate isn't going to be great, and his assumption is everyone's run out. So think about this scenario. Because with Paul and Silas already beaten and then put in prison, means that that's not their punishment. So we can see sort of with the precedent of Christ, right? He's, he's flogged, he's beaten, and then Pilate's going to set him free. So the implication is that's his punishment in the Roman Empire. And so with somebody being flogged or beaten up with, with rods and then put in prison, it means that the officials are not done with these prisoners and they've done something really bad. So the Philippian jailer is assuming that it's going to be a lot better if you have an opportunity to escape to run as fast as you can to get as far as you can from the city and when we find the, the implication at the end of the story with the officials coming in apologizing because they are Roman citizens and then sending them away or asking them to leave the city, the implication is if they've run out of town, the officials don't care. It's done. It's, it's resolved. These people have figured out we don't tolerate this stuff in this town anymore and they'll never come back. So you can understand where the Philippian jailer then rushes to this conclusion that, my goodness, they're going to kill me. Uh, I'm going to face a horrible fate, and it's better that they just find me dead with an empty prison rather than fall into the fate of what's coming my way. 
Well, when the jailer hears Paul calling out to him saying, we didn't escape, think about the implications of this. They're singing, they're praying, an earthquake all of a sudden happens in the midst of this, all the doors come open, chains fall off, this is not accidental. So the jailer understands there is something about the God that they serve that is powerful. There's something about this God who is sovereign, that he really does protect his citizens and his people. As he promises in Genesis 15, Abram, I am your shield and defender, do not be afraid. And so the the jailer, when he hears Paul crying out, we're still here. You can imagine a jailer like, are you insane? Do you not understand you could have run for the door, got out of the city, and and been spared? So clearly the the jailer's making a connection. There's something going on here that is just beyond human comprehension. There's something supernatural. There's something at work in these men that's beyond my understanding. And so the jailer asks a very logical and important question. What must I do, hear that, do, to be saved. So think about this. This man wants to know what works must I do to enter into a relationship with this God? Clearly there's something about your God that's greater than the other gods I've seen. What did you do? How'd you get this? How do I have this? How do I possess it? This is an important question because it gets at the heart of humanity, doesn't it? If you survey different philosophies, different religions, what do they hold out for us? They hold out for us a way of self-improvement and a way of coming into a relationship with a God through our works. We do particular things. We follow particular dietary laws. We meditate in a certain way. We pursue a certain God through a certain means. And as we get his attention... That God shows his love and affection to those who pursue him, right? I mean, that's, when you look at the world religions, I know I'm speaking in a generalization, but when you look at world religions and philosophies, that's by and large how we would summarize it. And so we can see man created in the covenant of works. Man wants to do a work to come into a relationship with a God. And that's important for us, isn't it? Because we want to do works. We want to be elites. We want to show our worthiness of the Lord's grace. Well, Paul lays out what Paul knows, doesn't he? Because Paul did not do a work to find this God. Our God, the true God. Paul didn't do anything to pursue him. In fact, Paul did the opposite. Paul persecuted those who followed Christ. And Christ rudely interrupted his plans. Paul experienced the conversion and power of God. So he tells the jailer, it's not about works you need to do. It's about repenting and believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the reality is now, this man hears something radically different. I need to repent and believe in this Christ. What do you mean? Or he actually says, just believe. In this call, there's no repentance as you see in other calls. And so it's probably... Paul doesn't want him to think about this work. He wants him to understand it's about believing in Christ as the one who comes to secure and make alive, to give new life. 
And so clearly there is something about Paul and, the, and Silas that they have not run out, that there is something to this God being a protector. And so right here we're understanding something somewhat about baptism because this man wants to be baptized, wants to be initiated, and brings these people to their home. So now we, we kind of have a bit of an understanding that this baptism sort of the sign as Paul goes into his home, baptizes this man, baptizes his household, and designates them as followers of Christ. But then we say, well, then, then why did he first profess his faith, right? Because clearly he professes his faith. Paul goes in there, teaches a family, and so it seems that the family professes their faith in God. Well, here we go, and, and we think about this man. This man moves from being scared, suicidal, I mean, literally, and, and within seconds of taking his life, at least as the text seems to imply, he's, it's certainly evident that he's right there about to do this. As Paul calls out to him, this man has to come to grips and, and move from this, I'm not doing something, I'm believing something. I'm not doing something, I'm resting in someone who makes me worthy. And so this, this man has to understand what this means. Well, as Paul goes in and goes to this man's house, we do see that this man certainly shows some Christian charity. Because obviously, as Paul and Silas are beaten by these rods, uh, they're going to have some open wounds that are probably pretty nasty at this point. Uh, they obviously haven't been cleansed or cleaned or, or treated in any way. There's no doubt they're in pain. And so you have this man actually administering first aid um, to cleanse these wounds and to actually show some compassion. So you're already seeing some fruit of this man rather than saying, oh, these are just upsetters of the city. These are outsiders who are problem people who that we need to just cast off to the authorities and let happen whatever needs to happen. Clearly this man's taken sides even before he knows that the officials are going to set them free. So we're seeing some boldness, aren't we? He's moving from a place of, I'm going to commit suicide because I don't want to face the officials to now, well, I'm ready to face the officials and I'm ready to deal with the consequences of my actions as I recognize what's right and honorable before the living God. And so we say, well, then, then what's going on? Why, why is it that we see in the book of Acts that you have someone profess faith and then they are baptized? Well, think about what we see in the pattern of Acts. We think about people coming together in Acts 2, verse 41, the beginning of this. We think about them receiving the word, and then they are baptized. Who, who's receiving the word? Well, Gentiles. Well, what is this sign communicating to us? It's communicating to us that those who are not of Jewish descent are those who receive the gospel, right? This is the point of Acts is going from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. Outsiders, outcasts, those who would be considered uh, sojourners always amongst the people of Israel, second-class citizens, are now those who are brought into the kingdom receiving the sign of baptism. We think of, of Philip, where you have him with, with the eunuch and how he uh, is one who, once again, the man believes and he is baptized. And so this is a sign where you have one 
who is professing faith. And as that person professes faith, they receive the sign of being designated to the covenant people of God, his household, right? Being designated, set apart. But this is what we see in the old covenant as well. We think of Genesis 15, 6. Isn't it Abraham who believes the promises of God? He believed them. He has this wonderful vision of God taking the the sanction of death in his place, right? He professes, he believes, he sees the covenant before him. What does Abraham do? And it's so important to understand Genesis 16 being between 15 and 17. And so often, uh, when you read people who disagree with infant baptism, they forget the significance of that chapter. Because you have Abraham and Sarai, or Abram and Sarai at that point, conspiring to bring about the promises of God through an adulterous relationship, through a surrogate's mother. Because they figure God's way too weak to bring life from death, right? That's what Paul says in Romans 4. They conspire, God can't bring life from death. We're a barren couple. Abram himself laughing, really a man in his 90s who hasn't had a child is all of a sudden going to have a child? Come on. We're barren. This is impossible, right? It's human cynicism creeping in, doubting the promise of God. So Genesis 16 is where Abram and Sarah conspire to help God. Well, Genesis 17 is the Lord basically grabbing Abram and saying, did I not tell you I'm going to bring about a child? Did I not tell you that through the seed of the woman, the triumphant Messiah would arrive in history? So it's important to understand this progression. This is why Gospels have genealogies. I've said this before, but it's important to remember that. The Gospels have genealogies to show the Lord's fulfillment of his covenant promise. Matthew goes back to Abram, the one who receives the initial official covenant of grace. Luke goes all the way back to Adam. There's a purpose for that, to say that Christ is that last Adam. So the sign of circumcision, as we read in Genesis 17, is a sign that's administered on the organ of generation, right? And so it's that reminder, yes, you and Sarai, a barren couple, are going to bring about this promised heir. And you and Sarai are going to have new names, no longer identified in your family of this age. You will move from my father is exalted, which means his dad probably was a prestigious man, to a father of a multitude. Sarai, no longer princess or, you know, heir of, of, of a princess or royal lineage of this age, to one who's also going to have this significant name communicating that here she is, the mother of the covenant children. So when you think about that, what happens in Genesis 17? It's important to understand this, and we'll get into this more at the household. But based upon the profession of Abram, he goes and he circumcises all the males of his house. He is told Ishmael is not the covenant line. He's told explicitly, Ishmael is going to have a great life under the sun. I, I promise you that, but it's not going to go beyond this age. I'm going to see to it he has a good life here. I will take care of him on account of, you, of your request. I will honor what you're asking. But he's not the covenant child. He will not enter into glory. Ishmael and Isaac both bear the sign of being set apart unto the Lord, even as Abram has explicit revelation that this child is not going to continue the lineage. Paul himself, when, when he plays on this, 
And he deals with this issue in the Corinthian church. And it's a real issue in the New Covenant, isn't it? Because as Acts communicates the gospel going out and people coming to faith, you're going to have an issue where maybe one um, parent is a believer and the other parent's not a believer. You don't know. It's possible. And so Paul deals with this with the Corinthian church when they write to him. And he says in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 14, he gives the assurance that parents are to raise their children in the Lord. Why? Because the, the household is made clean by the profession of the one spouse. The believing family is made holy by the profession of the one spouse. And he goes on to say, otherwise your children would be unclean. Using Old Testament, Old Covenant language. In other words, it's the assurance that based upon the profession of one parent, that parent can raise a child in the promises of God, exhorting the child to please the Lord, and reminding the child of who the child is. And so when we come back to this text, and we find the Philippian jailer professing his faith, there's nothing shocking here. Really, there, there isn't. This is an outsider, one who is not part of the covenant community, one who does not know Abraham or the Lord that Abraham served. And so he's professing faith. He bears a sign of being initiated into the covenant. He is now, like 1 Corinthians 7.14, going to raise his family in the Lord. And this brings us in briefly, what about the household? Well, this is where we find the full implications of this with the sign of the covenant. We've already mentioned Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Genesis 16, the sin. Abram and Sarai need to know that the Lord will work through them to bring about the seed of the woman. They've sinned. They're trying to do it in the flesh. Lord saying, I do this. I bring life from death. Romans 4, Paul's language. And as this happens, Abram is to go and circumcise his household which means that the whole house is set apart unto the Lord. You see, the problem is we, we think that because it's a sign that's administered in the flesh, there's no spiritual implication to it. But it's all spiritual. Because the Lord is going to bring about the Messiah through ge genealogy, through begetting. This is why genealogies are also in the Old Testament so important. It's the Lord continuing the line of his people against all hope. That when we look back at this as New Testament believers, we say, my goodness. Here we can read the news. We can be upset at what happens in terms of what we see in our life. We go, but what happened in the Old Testament? You have things that are far worse many times. And what does God do? He still delivers his people. He's never forsaken them. He works in the context of the household. We go on and, and we think about how Paul exhorts the household and how Paul is teaching this household. What, what did we read this morning for a law? We read from the law in Ephesians, right? Children are to obey their parents' wives, pleasing unto the Lord. This is the first uh, promise that, that's given or the first uh, command that's given with a promise and it's referring back to the fifth commandment. In the Decalogue, we look at Colossians 3, verse 20. Children, obey your parents, for this pleases the Lord. In other words, children are receiving exhortations to live out their covenant identity. This is what you see in the Passover. 
This is exactly what you're seeing here in Acts. It would make perfect sense for Paul to sit at the table and say, this is what's going on. So maybe he has older children. And so as he says this and as he teaches and instructs, this is just like what we would see in Passover where you would have the father and the child interacting with their history. Paul is saying this is who Christ is. This is the implications of Christ. And the children, the whole household receives a sign being set apart unto the Lord. And they say, aha, see, this is older children. But what do you have in Genesis 17? Why, why the promise of the eighth day? This is something else we, we overlook. It's not the seventh day, that's the Sabbath, right? That's the ultimate uh, goal of our Sabbath rest of what the Messiah is bringing. But God is teaching us something in circumcision as well. The eighth day is an octave day, remember? That's the day when you move one, the Sabbath plus one. So you go to the Sabbath rest, but the eighth day is where you're enjoying that Sabbath rest. And so even in circumcision is that call to realize what is the destiny of a covenant family to enjoy the Sabbath rest of the Lord. So here, when Paul is giving this instruction to the family, there's nothing that creates attention at all. As Paul is saying to the household, these are the promises of God. He comes to an unworthy people People who do not deserve his grace. People that do not deserve his mercy. Who do not deserve his love. And he bestows it upon them. He's the one who makes them worthy to enter into his presence. And it's a call to live this out in an orientation of knowing we are set apart unto the Lord. And this sign then to the household is where we remind our children to continue to live this out and to want to honor the Lord, and to remind them that the sign designates them and sets them apart unto Christ. Because there's also the other side of this. As one turns away, there's a warning of being cut off, as you hear with circumcision, right? Turn away from the covenant promises of God, you're cut off. Turn away from the covenant promises of God, you're swallowed in the sea. You're, you're like those outside the ark. You're like the Egyptians. And so you see these pictures of what this is pointing out to us. And as Paul is giving this, he's assuming even what Peter's saying in his Pentecost sermon. Because you have to understand the book of Acts with Pentecost and the Spirit going out. It's not the full realization of the promises of God. When Peter gives his Pentecost sermon, he does cite the day of the Lord. But he leaves off the whole entrance into heaven. And he speaks about the manifestation of the promises of God and the cutting off of the one and the judgment that's going on and how that's manifested. Don't we see that in the cross? Christ being cut off on our behalf as promised to Abraham. Christ taking the sanction of death in our place so we can have life. Don't we see Christ being raised from the dead and the significance of that? Christ sending out the life that his people have life in him. So when we think about what Paul's doing here in the context of this Philippian jailer being converted, there's nothing shocking here. As Paul simply catechizing a family, discipling them, showing them the implications of being in Christ and walking in Christ. We, we don't know if the children necessarily profess. They're never asked. 
But what they are is they are set apart unto the Lord exactly like what the Lord has said or what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7. Otherwise, your children would be unclean based upon the profession of one parent. Jeremiah 31, 31, that we read in our assurance of pardon. It's the covenant of Moses that Israel has transgressed. The Lord hasn't set aside the covenant of grace made with Abraham. We kind of realize this starts in Genesis 15 and 17. When we have Christ enter history, what happens? He's cut off. Cut off in the cross of the circumcision made without hands. He passes into the depth of the sea, into hell itself, and emerges triumphant. It's a sign of the covenant promises of God being confirmed. And so the household is set apart unto the Lord. So when we see Paul doing this, what is he teaching us? He's teaching us that as parents, we encourage our children to pray to our God. We encourage our children to continue to live out these promises. They're set apart unto their Lord. They have received the sign of baptism as being set apart unto the Lord. When they sin, it's not just sinning against mom and dad, it's also sinning against the Lord. And this is where we exhort our children. Times of doubt, times of hardship. Times of, of, of worry and stress and anxiety, what do we do? We invite them to, to meditate on the promises of God. Meditate on them truly. Who is your God? What has he done? Who is he? He is a God who is bigger than us. A God who is the Lord of life. A God who faces death and overcomes death. And it's an invitation, as Peter says, set your mind on this hope. What do we do? We set our mind on who our Lord is as a great Redeemer, the great Savior, the one who has overcome, the one who works in the context of the covenant community, and the God who saves definitively. Let us put our hope in him and see the, the beauty of the bigger picture of what's going on in this passage. Hopefully not beating up on anyone, but hopefully being encouraged that we are God's covenant family, set apart, called to live out the gospel before the Lord. And so how does this household baptism then, where we began, truly teach about baptism or infant baptism? Well, it teaches that the whole house is set apart unto the Lord. Noah, the ark, Israel, passing through the sea, Passover, fathers catechizing their children, etc. We can go through example after example after example. Abram going home, circumcising the whole household as being consecrated and set apart unto the Lord. It is a sign that not only exhorts our children to live out their faith and to have confidence in your Savior that he has overcome death, but it's a sign even for us to meditate and to think about the reality of that promise. I mean, isn't that what Peter means when he says, set your mind in this hope? It's not some superficial thing. It's not Peter saying, oh, you're never going to have anxiety. You're never going to struggle. You're never going to have hardship. It's Peter saying, how do we get through this? We think about who our Lord is. We meditate. We think about that reality. We continue to let this permeate who we are. That we recognize the promises of God. He really is a shield and defender. He really does go before us. The problem is we don't believe it. 
The problem is we, we don't really believe this is possible because we are with the Philippian jailer time and time again. What must I do to be saved? It's hard to believe. It's a God who has conferred so much love, so much grace, so much benevolence that he comes to such an unworthy people and makes us alive. This is why we have the sacraments, isn't it? To communicate the thing that, that we can't rationally fully understand and grasp, but to communicate it to us through a picture. We are a people who have passed through the depths of hell in Christ. I mean, really meditate upon what that means. We have passed through the depths of hell in Christ. And we have emerged triumphant in him. We are a new people. As we sojourn under the sun, as we recognize our struggles and our hardships in this age, where do we see ourselves? As those who realize the blessings of Christ. Let us then not see this as an opportunity to claim some sort of spiritual elitism, but even as the Belgic Confession reminds us, we don't have the sacraments because we're elite, because we're smart, because we're crude, because we, we do not understand the gospel. And as we have this sacrament, let us understand how it communicates to us. A people who have moved from death to life, empowered by the Spirit, empowered by Christ. And let us desire then to live as servants of the Most High, as the people have been purchased and bought in Christ, not, not to tyranny, but to redemption, to freedom, being free to live unto our God. Let us encourage our children in light of this covenant identity, exhorting them to obey, not just to obey, but to recognize it's an opportunity to live out of gratitude for their Lord and Savior. Let this permeate who we are. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archive sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com or subscribe to our current sermon series through most common podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you. Thank you.